film Promising Young Woman is very entertaining, but it also raises urgent issues about women's safety. In this episode, we talk to a critic, an activist and a former police chief constable. Here's Susanna Fish on the UK government's response to recent events. I would rather be having anything but this conversation. You know, the fact that we have to have this conversation is a really sad indictment on policing and a broader society. So there are the naysayers to say it's just some women having a whinge and a moan. And then hopefully it'll all die down and these nice little women will just sort of be patted on the head and they'll all go off. And I really hope this is such a wake-up call. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. This week, we're taking a look at the Oscar-nominated film Promising Young Woman, and opening out to a wider discussion about gender-based violence and harassment. Like most people in the UK, we were saddened and angered by the kidnap and murder of Sarah Everard. As a result, the government has been asked to urgently address the issue of women's safety and suggested the idea of police going undercover in nightclubs. By coincidence, it's a theme that's central to the upcoming release Promising Young Woman, The story revolves around Cassie, played by Carey Mulligan, who's reeling from traumatic events and decides to go into bars and pretend to be drunk in order to flush out exploitative men. Directed by Brit Emerald Fennell, it's been nominated for six BAFTAs and five Academy Awards and will be available to watch in the UK on the 16th of April. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I'm a nice guy. Are you? I'll be discussing the issues raised in Promising Young Woman with an activist and a former police chief. But first, I'll be chatting to Leila Latif, a film critic and broadcaster who contributes to Little White Lies, Total Film and BBC Radio 4. Leila, welcome to Girls on Film. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you. Now, listen, we loved your article in Little White Lies on the nice guys and movies that frame men who stalk women as romantic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a really fun one to write. It was kind of looking at films going back to an American in Paris to basically the entire romantic comedy catalogue of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, where we've got these romantic leads that are, you know, framed as like being these like wonderful, kind men that just so, you know, relentlessly pursuing the object of their affections. But actually, if you just shift your perspective and looking at it from the woman's point of view, I mean, they are making very clear and explicitly clear in all of these cases that they are not interested in this man, they are not interested in a relationship with man, and yet they relent. And it's just funny that like, even in modern romantic comedies, we, we kind of look at that as being like wonderfully romantic rather than like, you know, harassment, which is what it is. 
Totally. And when you try to think about the reverse, there are very few examples of that being framed as romantic. I mean, Garden State always strikes me as one where he just basically mm. just doesn't give up and you know, wears her down. So we thought you'd be a great person to speak to us about promising young women, which, you know, perhaps touches on some of those issues. But we're not going to go into big spoilers with this because the film's not out yet. But obviously it's very topical in lots of ways, not mm. only because it's been award nominated, but also because of the issues that have come up in the press in the UK in particular recently about women's safety. Let's start with your broad yeah. feeling about promising young women um what did you think of it i really like promising young women i think it what was really interesting is because obviously rape revenge is a sort of you know we've had those films as long as um we've had films i mean it's going back to the classics going back to medusa with this kind of rape revenge thing but what promising young women does that i was, thought was so interesting is it's sort of revenge against rape culture and what it's showing us is like a really like far spread and insidious thing where it's not just kind of one bad apple it's like a whole system that is created to just like disempower women and really how far that reaches. And I thought it was really effective. It's got a really interesting kind of tonal shift where it goes from like sort of a thriller to almost like a romantic comedy. And and I think that's done really well. Emerald Fennel, I think really does deserve all of the awards recognition that she's getting this year. So we know that the female cast is really strong and promising young women, but what about the casting of the men? What did you make of that? Yeah, I think it's so clever what um, Emerald Funnel's done because um, she's sort of packed this whole film with like all of these sort of really adorable teenage heartthrobs and like romantic leads that we know from other things like the incredibly charming Bo Bunham or um, Adam Brody, who um, I was personally in love with for all of my teenage years. But, uh, you know, like these really kind of like sweet guys that you can imagine letting your guard around. And, you know, it's that side of the culture that like, oh, it's not necessarily this big hulking brute you have to be afraid of. Like, you know, these nice guys supposedly can actually be just as big of a threat. It's a strikingly original film, isn't it? And I loved, as you say, that that tone, the way a little bit like we've recently seen with I Care A Lot, um, mm. dealing with very serious subjects, but with a darkly comic tone often and the thriller aspect. Another reason we wanted to talk about it today is that shortly after, you know, the, the serious discussions in the UK about women's safety, it was talked about the prospect of people police officers going undercover in bars yeah. um, to try to flush out potential offenders, which of course is, is what Carrie Mulligan's character essentially does in a vigilante kind of way in Promising Young Woman. They haven't said whether these would be male or female police officers, but I wondered what you thought about that in light of the film. Uh, my feeling about it is that it simply isn't the solution, I think that really what we have to do is kind of tackle as a culture the way that we raise our men to treat the women. I think a lot of these solutions that are being put forward aren't really going to do anything much. You know, longer sentences isn't going to create less rapes. Having more police officers around in bars, I don't think is going to prevent rapes. What we need to do is kind of tackle this as a society as a whole and all actually look at our personal parts in like what we can do to kind of protect women and, and safeguard against the sort of behaviours which you know, around consent. And like my husband's a teacher and he was telling me about all of the different measures that they're putting in to kind of teach younger people about consent and stuff. And, you know, I'm in my 30s. I didn't have any of that when I was in school. So I'm actually hoping that it's something that will shift also as the generations get a little bit older. It's interesting, isn't it? And also that we're seeing it in a very mainstream movie, which is nominated for Oscars, you know, mm. and these aren't the kind of films that we've necessarily, I mean, of course, there was The, the Accused, I do remember many yeah. years ago, that that's perhaps um, an unusual example, but 
that obviously was about a woman who was raped in a bar. And I thought that was a very powerful film. Yeah. But Promising Young Woman is is taking a more perhaps contemporary look at it, but showing that there is an equal issue with law enforcement and being taken seriously. And not even the law, but the first person that you go to to complain about this might just shut you down without going into spoilers. I think that taps into what you're saying, the idea of, you know, women not being heard. Do you think that's something that is changing for younger generations? I hope so. I mean, I did watch this incredible documentary, which I would say would be a really great companion piece to uh, Promising a Young Woman that's on Netflix. It's called, and it's also very hard to say, Red Roll Red, which is all about something very similar to what happens in Young Women and a sort of like system around a high school in America and the way that it's not just the way that the police underserve people and the lawyers are insidious, but like this whole idea that as a society that we need to protect men from the accusation of sexual assault above anything else. And that's actually, in that documentary, they use the phrase promising young men very often to kind of describe that we oh, we must give these people very light treatment because they're promising young men and we don't want to ruin their futures. So I think as a way, we just have to value the women in our society the way that we value men and their futures. Uh, I just didn't understand it at all. I if teachers knew about it, if coaches knew about it, if a principal knew about it, if parents knew about it, why was nothing done about that? The question was, is this football town, you know, putting its daughters at risk by protecting its sons in a situation like this? I think that's, it's a huge kind of paradigm shift for us all. And like, this is what I love about the power of cinema, like something like Promising Young Women is sort of it sets it out so concisely in a way that like exactly what it is that needs to change. And I hadn't seen before, correct me if I'm wrong, but that depiction of something which unfortunately is a phenomenon, which is guys waiting till the end of the night, mm. um, scanning the dance floor, looking for the girl who's a bit worse for wear and exploiting her. And that really is about consent then, isn't it? And it's also about the shame or the supposed shame of what state a woman might be in. And, and do you feel that we need to get past this kind of, well, the slut shaming, you know, that kind of, oh, she was wearing a short skirt, she was drunk, therefore. Yeah, I think it, it's quite interesting that like where within this kind of genre of rape revenge, we used to have much more kind of brutal and graphic sexual assaults on screen. And now there's kind of quite a lot of interesting films. I'm thinking of obviously this and a film recently that's come out called Violation, where it is that kind of more subtle sort of sexual assault where, you know, maybe it's somebody doesn't have the capacity to consent or is kind of being bullied into it in some way. That sort of, I mean, that thing that's kind of insidiously called date rape, but is in fact, you know, Rape. And I think it's very interesting that in these like new modern films, we are exploring that sort of grayer area where it is harder for women to get justice. Yeah, absolutely. And we've recently been talking to Morvith Clark about Saint Maud. I don't know if you've seen that, mm, but yeah. that has a scene in that which is also about what you what might have been termed date rape, which I do agree is not a, not a good term at all. But yeah, that what some might see is a grey area of consent, or what some men might see is a grey area of consent, and and how important it is for films to explore that. Why do you think we don't see it more, or it's only now we're starting to see that more? I guess part of it is because really, 
I mean, it, you don't have to look back very far, even just when you go back to kind of when Harvey Weinstein, everything that he did was coming out, like the way that we as a society are able to blame women for their own sexual assaults is, is really horrific. And I think that we're only really just coming through to like having a mainstream idea of coercing someone into sex or having sex with them where they are incapable of consent is actually a bad thing. And like that a woman shouldn't feel any responsibility for that, that it wasn't kind of like, oh, okay, they probably shouldn't have, but you know, what did you do to entice them? Like, I mean, it's terrible that in 2021, we're still kind of only just getting there. I agree. And I think while Promising Young Women is a kind of sobering watch in many ways, I'm excited that this is bringing that very important conversation massively into the mainstream. It's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that. Really? <laughs> Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? <laughs> Are there any other films that sprung to mind when you were thinking about this topic? I suppose like more what it made me think of was kind of older films and like the way that coercion is kind of used in those films and like even going back to certain episodes of Sex in the City where I was watching one the other day where Miranda was being harassed in the street and she kind of confronts the people that are being rude to her and like the way that she does it is with such kind of like she essentially like propositions them and like that sat really strangely with me now like this idea that kind of the only way to sort of combat that is with aggression and it's not actually asking men to change their behavior it's asking us to kind of stand up to them in a way so like yeah it is if anything promising young women just made me look back on some other films and like the sort of problematic nature that they have towards sexual harassment of being like a kind of two-way street that as women we need to kind of not indulge, but like certainly participate in rather than something that about men that needs to change. That's an interesting point. There was an article in Stylist recently about um, an Australian initiative to tell men how they can make feel more comfortable when they're walking down the street at night. Mm. You know, rather than writing the, the article for women going, this, this is how you avoid being assaulted. This is a guide for men saying this is how you, you make women feel safe and you help your female friends. I remember actually pitching a few male magazines in the 90s about a similar article. They were not interested. So it, it shows that things have moved on that, you know, a whole you know, companies that are now actually publishing those kind of things and that we're seeing that in films. Is there anything else about Promising Young Women without spoilers that you'd like to highlight that you think is really relevant to, unfortunately, the kind of discussions that we're having in the UK at the moment? I think that, like, you know, it's it's got a lot to it. And I love that there's, like, a real sense of that central character, Cassandra, which is just, like, such a brilliant name for that character because, <laughs> you know, she's telling the truth, but no one will believe her. Um, and that she's just going through this like real grief and survivor's remorse. And especially with the events of the past few weeks, I really do feel that we, especially in the UK as women, like we've sort of all been participating in a certain grief as well, like a collective sadness as we kind of come to terms with like the tragedies that are happening. So it really like tapped into that beautifully for me. And like the idea then became quite empowering that like we can then like tackle this as a culture at every stage rather than trying to kind of weed out a couple of bad apples, like big solutions. And do you think there's an issue here um, for intersectional feminism and something that we need to discuss in that respect? You know, 
In terms of intersectional feminism, it doesn't really provide any answers. I suppose like that's the problem when you have kind of films that are, you know, have a feminist message that like we do want them to be for everyone and nothing really can be. So that is a shortcoming of this film, but like plenty of men make films that don't address every issue for every man. So I won't hold it against it too much, but, you know, hopefully we can in the future get more excellent films from, you know, other types of women. Thank you for joining us to talk about that, but I'd also love to know what else you've been watching. Um, It can be any kind of topic, but anything you'd recommend for the listeners. Right, I've been doing a bit of a, well, two things really. I've been going through the back catalogue of of Chloe Zhao because I shamefully, she got nominated for the Oscar for Nomadland, first ever woman of colour to do so. I'd seen Nomadland, but now I'm going back to see all of her previous work. Then I'm also doing a bit of a deep dive into the works of the African author Ousmane Semben at the moment, which I would strongly recommend. Uh, Studio Canal's doing a re-release of his work and it's just the most wonderful, beautiful vision of Africa. Africa that you know I'm from Sudan so it's really lovely for me to actually tap into something about Africa that wasn't Zamunda or Wakanda or somewhere else <laughs> fictional. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you enjoy those um, Zamunda or Wakanda ones as well? Or <laughs> Oh yeah no I do I do but it was just nice to see Dakar as it is like for once. Exactly well then what else are you up to and um, how can we find out more about your work? Well I'm in pretty much every issue of Little White Lies. I'm in pretty much every issue of Total Film at the moment. Um, And then I regularly appear on BBC Four's Front Row and uh, the Arts Hour on the BBC World Service. So I'm about... (laughs) You can't miss you. Brilliant. Um, Well, I can't believe we haven't had you on Girls on Film before, but thank you, Leila, for joining us. And we hope to see you again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Leila Latif. My next guest is Amara Zaina, a frontline gender-based violence worker who's also a freelance writer and educator who specialises in gender and racial justice. Amara, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very pleased to have you. Um, We're also very interested in your job. Tell us, what does a frontline gender-based violence worker involve? So I've been in the domestic violence sector, the gender-based violence sector, since I was 19. And I used to work in a women's refuge and I now am a caseworker. So I offer one-to-one support for women and girls over the age of 14 who are living with or fleeing any kind of gender-based violence. The majority of these cases are domestic abuse related, but they also cover other forms of gender-based violence, such as forced marriage or FGM or on-based violence. I specifically work for an organisation that specialises in supporting racialized women, so that's black, Asian and ethnic minority women, as well as migrant women who usually are the ones that get left behind in a lot of the support services and the government legislation. Do you find this work rewarding? I love it. It's the best decision I ever made in my life. I uh, started volunteering when I was about 19 and got a paid position and have since moved around to different charities. And I find that working with survivors to support them, I guess, in their journey towards healing is probably the most rewarding thing there is. You know, these, these women are incredibly resilient but a lot of the time just need some steering in the right direction and just need to know what options are available to them. And I'm just continuously grateful for the opportunities I have to do that. That sounds amazing. Incredible work. Tell us about your involvement with Our Streets Now as well. So part of the um, the kind of the work I do in the domestic violence sector is to do with education and awareness 
obviously I I do a lot of crisis work. That's my day-to-day stuff. But I also think the way we can combat gender-based violence continuing in the future is through education and awareness and legislative change. I've been involved with Art Streets now for, I think, two years almost. It literally started with me submitting a testimony and now I'm one of the writers and the campaigners on the team. Gender-based violence is a massively broad topic. It's not just physical violence and it's not just domestic abuse. And if you actually study the dynamics of violence, particularly gendered violence, you'll see that it, it forms a kind of pyramid structure and you have the kind of the homicides at the top, the more extreme end of violence at the top. But things like public sexual harassment and sexism that occurs in the workplace, sexism that occurs in schools that is not called out lays the foundations for this pyramid and then it just builds and builds and builds over time. And for me, public sexual harassment is one of the first experiences that a lot of girls have with gendered violence, with gender-based violence. But it ranges from men coming up to you and hitting on you on the streets or, you know, honking at you in a van or in a car to being followed or physically attacked. And I guess for me, I think that violence needs to be combated from both directions rather than just from the bottom up or the top down, we need to be calling out all forms of gender-based violence. And public sexual harassment is a big one. And I think particularly looking at at perpetrators of it who are very young, it's the first instance where they're allowed to commit an act of violence and it's it's not getting called out, so then it becomes normalised. And I think that by pushing for for changes in the way that we discuss public sexual harassment or even the way that we recognise it, we could hopefully see some really big change. Well, obviously, the discussion has become more public and publicised in the UK recently for very tragic reasons. Can you briefly describe, perhaps for some people listening outside of the UK, what happened at the Sarah Everard vigil and also your response to that? The Sarah Everard vigil is... Uh, a very difficult thing to discuss because I think as as a woman of colour, as a mixed-race black and a South Asian woman of colour, police brutality is something that I've been exposed to many times in my life. And working specifically with marginalised women, horrific treatment from the police is not new, it's not unexpected, it's... it's It's part of everyday life, you know. There's a lot of people in this country who do not trust the police and myself included believe that, you know, defunding the police is the way to go forward because reform doesn't work. What we saw at the vigil is kind of, for me, one of the biggest examples of of the problems with the police. And I think for a lot of people, it was that shift between thinking, oh, the police do protect me to, oh my God, no, they don't. They don't protect people who look like me. They don't protect protect people of my gender. They don't protect us. And it was essentially, it was a vigil. It was meant to be a vigil. It was meant to be mainly women and marginalised genders gathering in a space in a socially distant manner. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. To pay their respects to a woman who lost her life to male violence. And it was calm it was it wasn't you know there were speakers there standing in the middle of the bandstand who were I believe from Sisters Uncut who are an incredible incredible group that have done 
amazing things for marginalised people in this country. And then the police got involved and they didn't let the speaker speak. And then suddenly it turned from a socially distant gathering to the police asserting violence on people who were literally just there to mourn. And I think there's something very sinister about not allowing women to grieve. Since then, from what I've seen on the news, I mean, I had to take a bit of a break from it, but from what I've seen on the news, there's been a lot of discussions about the role of the police and the role of the police in protecting women and how actually they seem to harm us more than they do any good. That was very well summed up and very thought-provoking. Do you find it frustrating that it's only perhaps when white privileged middle-class women suddenly wake up to a situation through seeing something like this that they can relate to that the conversation gets louder? I do find it frustrating because I guess I've been one of the voices who've been making noise for a very long time. And I think for me, when I was there and I was watching people people's reactions to the police, to the violence the police were inflicting and the shock on their face, I... I saw the women that I've supported over the years and I saw them and I thought, no one has this reaction for them. Like, to give you an example, I had a client once, this is one case I don't think I'll ever forget, I had a client once who was a migrant woman. She was staying, she had like a a lawful visa. I hate a lot of the terminology to do with immigration, but she was staying here legally in the eyes of the law Um, but she had a very strong accent. She didn't really understand English that well, and she was experiencing a lot of physical violence. She called the police. The police came to the property, realised she was not, well, realised she was an immigrant, and then suddenly they call the Home Office and she's put into a detention centre. Oh, my God. And this is the reality of of migrant women and of racialized women and of marginalized women in this country. And I think for me, the one question, like my my heart broke reading, reading about and watching the stuff to do with Sarah Everard, because, you know, yes, as, as a woman, I saw so much of myself in that story. And my, like, my heart broke for her, her family and her loved ones. But there was also this part of me that thought, if that were me, as a mixed-race Muslim woman, there would not be that noise. Where was the noise for my clients? Where was the noise for all of these other women who are not subjected to the kind of privilege that, you know, a lot of these mainstream cases, domestic violence, domestic violence cases are? And I think, you know, I have, to, I have to be mindful of my energy as well because if we're having discussions on gender-based violence and all I'm doing is getting angry at white privilege... That is very consuming for me and very taxing on my own mental health. I think it's frustrating that this conversation only seems to be going somewhere now that middle class white women are getting involved. But I would like to believe that their involvement and the hopefully increase in solidarity means we can actually see some meaningful change. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's always the most marginalised who push for the change, but... We, we need everyone to get on board for that change to be meaningful. We need people in positions of power to do something to shift the kind of the dynamics. What can the listeners do to help? So at the moment, the Home Office have opened 
their raw consultation again. So they closed it. It was like an open call for people to submit anonymously stories of, well, stories, ideas, thoughts, anything to do with violence against women and girls. And in the wake of the Sarah Everard case, they reopened it because they, you know, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about violence against women and girls now. And there's a brilliant organisation called Level Up who I've been working with and um, doing a bit of campaigning with who are encouraging people to fill out the survey and to really state their ideas and their experiences of violence against women and girls. And I think we need the government to hear us, we need the government to listen to us uh, and filling out that survey currently is probably the strongest method we have of making sure that we're heard. So yeah, check that out. Definitely, will do. Thank you for that. Um, on Girls on Film, we've been involved with 16 Days, 16 Films. I don't know if you've heard about them. We worked with them last year on their award ceremony, but they showcase um, female filmmakers who make films about gender-based violence from around the world. Um, and I, I feel that film is an important way to get the message across because, as you say, particularly in terms of calling things out, things that people were watching when they're young. Um, what's your feeling about that? Are you a film fan and do you think that, you know, the, the visual medium has uh, something to offer in terms of educating? Yeah, I think I think it does because I, I think a lot of visual art is, is accessible. You know, if you look historically at, at art and who can access certain types of art, as amazing as classic literature is, it's not accessible for a lot of people. Whereas I think film can be, if done correctly, quite accessible, quite universally accessible. And I think that, you know, the representation of, of women in the media and in film and in TV and all these things is so important because they shape our perceptions of women in general, especially with young people. You know, they they see how women are portrayed in films, in even, even something as, as simple as like Disney you see all the women characters there and how they are. And that shapes your idea of, of what women's function is in the world. And I think also one thing about film and particularly about reporting gender-based violence is that when, when survivors use this art form to represent their stories or to raise awareness, it's, it's a powerful method of, of healing. You know, a lot of the documentaries I've seen or a lot of the kind of expositions I've seen are survivor-led or they're, you know, done in memory of someone. And I think that that is always very, very powerful. I think, you know, when it comes to gender-based violence, it, every, everything needs to be survivor-focused and survivor-led because they're the ones who know what needs to be done. Totally agree. That's certainly the case with a lot of the films in 16 Days, 16 films. And I May Destroy You, for example, the TV series is also from that perspective. Um, as is the film Promising Young Woman, in a way. Um, what have you heard about that? I presume you haven't had a chance to see it yet because it's not out. No, no, I haven't. Um, are you keen to see it? Are you interested? It's hard because I, I do a lot of work on gender-based violence, like in my work and then in my journalism <laughs> and then in my activism. So I guess in my free time, I do try to avoid heavily violent topics. That's completely fair enough. I totally get it. Hey, what in that case, what have you been enjoying watching that completely takes you away from your work um, that you can recommend to the listeners? My, um, my partner makes me watch cartoons when I'm stressed, <laughs> especially when I'm having really difficult days at work. It's just like, no, no violence, cartoons only. Oh, that's cute. What, what cartoons do you find the best for that? 
Oh, I love Big Mouth on Netflix. It's so funny. Excellent. Good tip. Nice one. Listen, is there anything else about your work you wanted to leave us with? So I wrote an article recently for The Independent that I was very proud of discussing women who have no recourse to public funds and the support that's not available to them because of their immigration status when they're fleeing domestic abuse. I'm always keen to mention that, to mention the domestic abuse bill and what's happening with that and why it's quite problematic. And yeah, just encouraging people to be more, I guess, critical and sceptical when they see big voices in the government talking about domestic abuse and asking whether the most marginalised are represented in these bills. Well said. And people can find out more about all those things if they follow you on social media, I presume. Yes, they can. Or check out my website, which is just my full name. Great. And we'll put all that in the show notes as well. Listen, Amara, this has been such an enlightening and important interview for me. Thank you so much for talking to Girls on Film. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was Amara Zena. My final guest is Susanna Fish, who was a police officer for 31 years and retired as Chief Constable of Nottinghamshire Police. She was awarded the OBE for services to policing in 2008, and she received the Queen's Policing Medal for Distinguished Service in 2016. She was also awarded Upstander of the Year in the National Hate Crime Awards in 2017 for her leadership on misogyny as a hate crime. Well, Sue, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you very much. It's absolute honour to have you on the show. Um, we've been listening to you on Radio 4 talking about the issues which, of course, are in the headlines at the moment. How are you feeling about the current conversation around women in safety, with particular reference to your own past in the force? That's a really complicated answer, I, I think. Well, it's a complicated question to answer. In some ways, I'm feeling really sad and devastated for the thousands of women who are affected by violence against them. But on the other hand, I'm feeling that there's a real opportunity and a moment where we stop sort of doing some talking, not necessarily we women, um, but certainly some men do some stop talking or actually start hearing, start listening, and we start taking action that's going to make a difference to every woman in this country. Well said. In terms of your own experiences in the force, could you give us a few examples of events or moments that troubled you with a reference to sexism within the force? And after that, could you let us know whether you think things may have moved on? <laughs> um, oh, gosh, another million dollar question. So if I just sort of put the context in, when I joined the police back in the mid-1980s, I mean, a very long time ago, I joined Nottinghamshire Police it was 11 years after the Sex Discrimination Act, making employment of women and men unlawful if they judged marital status as one of those issues, or indeed had a quota for um, men or women. 11 years, this has been illegal, and this was the police service I was joining. So those two things I, I think are important. But when I applied to join Nottinghamshire Police, I was told they only employed 8% of the force establishment. So in other words, the number of police officers as women who were women um, or 185, whichever was fewer of this, these special sort of people, because they didn't want too much clearly of a good thing. So that was utterly illegal. But I just turned down a graduate entry job because I really wanted to go into policing. I thought this was something that would really 
suit my personality. But once they were about to offer me the job as one of these 185 or 8%, whichever was the fewer of these special people, it dawned on them that I was living with a man. And it would have been less controversial as living with a woman, to be fair. They said, well, you know, um, are you living in sin? (laughs) So I said, well, by that, do you mean, are we not married to one another? Then yes, that's correct. So they then said, well, the chief constable won't offer you a job if you are living in sin. You will have to regularise the position. So I phoned them up the following week and said, yep, we're getting married, May the 30th next year. Is that okay? Absolutely fine. Yep, you've been offered the job. The only person that didn't know about it was the chap who actually did become my husband. Um, (laughs) So, um, but we did get married on May the 30th next year and we're still married to one another. So um, that's lovely. So that was my introduction to, you know, the chief constable didn't have his female officers being living in sin. But interestingly, if I'd have already been married, he wouldn't have offered me a job because he didn't employ married women officers. Men who were married were obviously a good thing because they would be reliable. They'd have a mortgage. They'd have a wife to support and probably children to support too. So they would work hard and do lots of overtime, whereas a woman that was married would clearly go off and have babies and that would be a waste of money, wouldn't it? But I only discovered this once I I joined having slightly fibbed. I mean, that was sort of entertaining, but it was really quite serious. Again, completely illegal. But yet this was the police service. So I had an interesting introduction to policing. Now, those sorts of barriers to women in policing are almost laughable now because simply wouldn't and couldn't happen, thankfully. So the sort of, you know, the overt, obvious sexism, and it was fairly unreconstructed then, I think it's probably fair to say. Now, I think, and it's hard to say because I've been retired from policing for a number of years now, four years. And then my last sort of the second half of my service, I was pretty senior and then became very, very senior. So you do get protected and insulated to some extent in the organisation. So what you then see is stuff that's much more insidious and more subtle because of the organisational power that I then wielded was greater technically than a lot of, of, of the men. So how it was was sort of different and Whereas I think my experience as a junior officer was much longer ago, you know, as a PC on the beat and things. But what's been really sad since I've started been campaigning to have misogyny made as a hate crime since I retired from policing. But in the light of Sarah Everard's murder, the sort of public profile that I've had in, in some media over the last couple of weeks, I've been pretty inundated with messages from women who are both serving and who have left policing telling me about their experiences and particularly those who are still serving. This is their now lived experience of being bullied, harassed, indecently assaulted, subject of attempted rape, having men's genitals, police officers' genitals exposed to them, sent to them on photos. And you know the fact that that behaviour is still there for some officers and some women officers are subject to that is is deeply distressing and deeply disturbing. That is shocking and horrifying to hear. Where do you think we're going with this? Do you think culprits will be taken to task and do you think 
there's no going back now. This is a new era. Is that is that being overly optimistic? I'm an optimist. <laughs> I always have been. So I really hope so. But I guess there are two ways that it can go. One is that this is some ex-chief constable who's really trying to raise her profile. Frankly, I would rather be having anything but this conversation in the nicest possible sense. You know, the fact that we have to have this conversation is a really sad indictment on policing and a broader society. So there are the naysayers who aren't all men in policing as well as in broader society to say, you know, it's just women, you know, some women having a whinge and a moan and it's really a bit pathetic and get over yourselves and just carry on doing the same thing. You know, hold your nerve, you know, express some shock and express some regret. Perhaps you could always suggest we had undercover officers deployed in bars. You know, that would obviously make, make a difference, wouldn't it? And then hopefully it'll all die down. And these nice little women will just sort of go back, be patted on the head, and they'll all go off and stuff like that. I really hope this is such a wake-up call. I mean, for me in policing, or well, out of policing now, but in a policing context, I hope, for all the wrong reasons, but I hope that the murder of Sarah Everard is a bigger turning point for policing as the death of Stephen Lawrence, the murder of Stephen Lawrence, was for racism. I really hope it is. I hope it's, it is a pivotal moment where some of the talking stops and real action, real sustainable, proper action, fundamental action is taken at all levels in society, not just in policing. But, you know, if the police can't or won't protect you, this isn't a country that I feel proud of. And I usually do. And I usually feel incredibly proud of policing because there are some amazing policemen, women in the service, protecting the public, working amazingly with victims of crime. And yet there are some who love the authority, who are able to abuse the power that they have as a police officer. And that is awful. And they don't deserve to be a police officer, in my view. You mentioned the idea of undercover cops in bars in general, and we're interested to chat about that in particular because the film Promising Young Woman, which has, has yet to come out, but features a female vigilante character going undercover in bars, pretending to be drunk to flush out potential offenders. Do you have any sense that if this undercover cops in bars idea goes ahead, whether gender would be a factor? Would one be more effective than another? My understanding is that this um, particular idea came from Thames Valley Police, where they had deployed this very effectively to combat a particular issue in a venue in their local nighttime economy. It might have been absolutely the right thing to do in a very targeted, discreet way. But I think you know the way that it was flag-waved as a big piece of PR by the Prime Minister really was hugely counterproductive and failed to understand the significance for many women of the history of policing undercover and inappropriate sexual relationships. Could you expand on that a little bit more? I'm interested in when you say about the history of policing undercover. Well, there is a, I believe it is a public inquiry. There is certainly an inquiry into the role of undercover officers and their sexual exploitation of women whilst they are deployed have been deployed undercover. Now, the rules of policing were always really clear with undercover officers that that was not acceptable. However, some appear to have taken absolutely no notice of that and gone on and formed relationships and sexual relationships with women in their undercover role, fathered children in their undercover role, 
and completely duped the women that they were in a relationship with. So that has been a highly emotive, not unsurprising, um, issue for many women's organisations who see that quite properly, I think, as sexual exploitation of women by the police, you know, whilst on duty carrying out their role, whether it was sanctioned or not. You know, in many ways, that's not the important issue. It's the fact that they felt that they were able to do that and did with impunity until very recently. It's it's all incredibly shocking. Um, so tell me, what's a priority for you at the moment? Can you tell us a little bit about the activism work that you're currently doing? My priority at the moment has been around getting misogyny as a hate crime rolled out across the country. Now, the government agreed to do that on an experimental basis, was the language from the autumn, which goes to part of the narrative about have we just sort of managed to calm down these, these sort of stroppy women, um, put them in their place, and by the autumn they'll have forgotten about it because we'll have had a third wave of COVID by then and, you know, we'll be talking about something else. I think they're going to be really wrong. So what really matters to me now is that police forces because about a third of police forces in the country now record misogyny as a hate crime or, or it's called gender, but in essence, it's the same thing. So this is going to be every police force in the country. I, want, I really want them to do it properly. It really matters. This is an opportunity to reshape, redefine some of that relationship with women. And that was what we tried to do in 2016 when I brought it in in Nottinghamshire as the first force in the country. And start to have a completely different conversation with women about their experience because it actually recognises their experience, their lived experience for so many every day. And it also sends a really strong message to men about the fact that this isn't acceptable behaviour. However normalised it might be, it's frequently criminal. It's frequently seriously criminal. So what I have learned is that you can just sort of say, right, we're going to do it. We're going to tick a box, but we're not going to bother telling anyone. You know, we're not going to tell our own staff and train them as to why this is really important so that you can have that different discussion, both internally in an organisation and externally, both with women who want to report their experiences and with men who are perpetrators and address their behaviour. So having this rollout of misogyny as a hate crime nationally, it's just it feels like both on the one hand a huge victory, but also, and it is a victory, but there is a real, really big piece of work to do now to make sure it's properly implemented and implemented really well. That means that it's part of the solution, as opposed to the sort of the binary people saying, no, it's, it's no use, it's no good, it's a knee jerk, or, you know, it's the answer to everything. Well, actually, it's neither of those things anyway. It's simply a first step. And it's a first step of reshaping that relationship with women and with men internally and externally and there is so much then else that needs to happen uh, in my book but won't necessarily fall to me no doubt in terms of such a radical overhaul of the criminal justice system and I think policing more broadly as well in relation to how they treat women and girls who are victims of crime and I think we need to look fundamentally at education of our boys and our men you know, that's probably not an issue for policing or anything that I'm an expert on, but we actually have to totally redefine what it is to be a man, I think, and to understand and actually to empower 
all the decent men out there to call out their friends' behaviour and to stand up for what is right and to point out what is so badly wrong. Amen to that. And yeah, here's to the allies in the men listening who do fight for our cause because that is so important. And as we're always saying on the podcast, it's really important for young boys growing up to have positive images and positive messages about a fair and equal society on screen in front of them. Honestly, I mean, you, you do so much fantastic work and we really are thrilled that you've joined us to talk about it today. Thank you so much, Susanna. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Promising Young Woman is available from the 16th of April on Sky Cinema and the streaming service now via the Sky Cinema membership. You might also be able to find it on demand if you're listening from outside the UK. Good God almighty. You know, they put themselves in danger, girls like that. It was a perverted thing to say. You'd think you'd learn by that age, right? Please lay down. What are you doing? It's okay, you're safe. What are you doing? Hey, I said, what are you doing? At some point, we'll be doing a full discussion on the film, including spoilers, so make sure you subscribe to Girls on Film to be the first to hear it. Meantime, you can listen to our teaser review in episode 62. To watch award-winning short films about gender-based violence, go to 16days16films.com, and that's 16 as in the number. Don't forget, we're also recommending a female-focused film every day on our social platforms. Go to Facebook, Girls on Film Podcast, Twitter, Girls on Film underscore pod, and Instagram at Girls on Film underscore podcast. And do check out our Patreon page for extra treats. We're at patreon.com forward slash Girls on Film Podcast. Girls on Film is an HLA production. It's brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archibald, audio producer Emma Butt, assistant producers Heather Dempsey and Eliana Jay, and principal partner Peter Brewer. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Susanna Fish, Leila Latif and Amara Zaina. See you soon and stay very safe. a day of reckoning for everyone. everyone.